Welcome to the Tales of Mythic Adventure podcast, coming to you from distant shores with your hosts, Jeff and Mob. Welcome to another episode of Tales of Mythic Adventure. I'm Jeff Richard here in our Berlin studios, and in Fortress Melbourne, we have... We have Mob, it's Michael O'Brien here. Good morning, everyone. We also have Rob, the producer, in another part of Fortress Melbourne. Yes, good morning, slurping through my coffee. Now, now guys, I think we need to have a, a refreshment update, because when I did the episode notes for last week, there was no refreshment, refreshment update, and I think we missed it. Well, I'm drinking coffee because it's six in the morning. What about you, Jeff? I'm drinking ginger ale because it's very warm today. And we're going to head over to uh, the green room, which we have in a completely different uh, country. Continent. <laughs> it's in a completely different continent. The North American green room today, where we have my partner, Rick Mites of Moon Design. Say hi, Rick. Hi, Rick. Oh, oh, you mean everybody else. Hi, guys. Great yes. to be here. Happy to be a guest. Oh, and Thank you for quick, having me. Quick, quick refreshment update, Rick. What, what you having? Sadly, what? I've only been drinking a bottle of water recently. Oh, uh, we've, we've got to do better uh, beverages for our guests in our green room, I think, Jeff. <laughs> so tell you what, I, if, it makes us all, if it makes us all a little bit happier, I'll break open a Bitburger, and I'll drink it for you, Rick. Oh, thank you. It's only, Hold it up only to the microphone. It's being held up to the microphone. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That's quite generous of you, Jeff. <laughs> so, so Rick is the, uh, the the president of Moon Design, and in in his spare time, or I think this is probably a, a, a big part of his life as well, Rick, you you're also a pretty serious collector of things related to uh, role-playing and, and Glorantha in particular. Would, would that be a fair enough thing to say, that you're a pretty serious collector? Oh, yes. I, I've been collecting RuneQuest and Gloranthan and role-playing materials since the 1970s. The 1970s, wow. Yep. Rick, is, it's true. It, it, it's true. You have an entire room dedicated to your collection. Yes, I do. I, I do have a series of bookshelves and boxes and other things, a, a whole room full of uh, miscellaneous wonders and delights, and a bit of tat as well. <laughs> wow. So uh, if you started in the 70s, what did you actually start with? Well, the first things I collected were just all the things I was buying to actually play games. Mm -hmm. And I was one of these kids that always kept his toys in really good condition. So I never liked it when a cover started coming loose or, you know, pages got wrinkled or bent or the box had a dinged corner or split corner or things like that. I always like to keep my uh, things in pretty good condition. And so almost everything I've ever bought as a role-playing product is still in my collection. Um, so, so, Rick, how, how old were you in 1979? I had uh, just turned 13, and my wonderful parents had made me the offer from many years earlier of that any time I wanted to buy a book, uh, they thought it would encourage me reading, so they were happy to buy me role-playing books as well. So Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, RuneQuest Rulebook, as long as they were books, they were happy to buy them for me. Okay. Yeah, I had that deal as well. That, uh, that was a sweet deal. I got my... Uh, AD&D Monsters Manual 
as a uh, Christmas present, I think, from my grandparents under this. And I think uh, as staunch evangelical Baptists, I, I, I doubt that they would have been very impressed with the subject matter. But <laughs> it, fit the, it fit the buying a book uh, criteria. Yeah, I, my parents also use the line, at least he's reading. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And so keeping all those different books just uh, in pretty good shape. I mean, yeah, they got beat up around the edges and all that because I, I played quite a bit of it. Once I especially got to RuneQuest, I wasn't really a GM at all. I was a player. And so as I, as, after we finished these campaigns or whatever, I would usually buy that book. Like, you know, after I finished playing Griffin Mountain, I bought Griffin Mountain. After we went through Snake Pipe Hollow, I bought Snake Pipe Hollow. Just because I wanted to read about some of the stuff we may have missed or things like that. And just kept setting all those books aside. Well, I'm just going to throw to another question then, Rick. So, if we go back to uh, to, to the 1970s, what's 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 an oldie but a goodie you've got sitting in your in your collection? Well, some of the really early uh, Chaosium stuff that I have, as I was talking about uh, Griffin Mountain in particular, that's that's 1981, so it's not quite the 70s. But one of the Pride of Place things I have in my collection. Uh, framed and up on the wall is the cover painting by Janelle Jakeways uh, of the Griffin Mountain painting. The the original painting. Yes, the that's original. That's far. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's but that's hardly the most impressive oldie uh, collector's item that you have up on the wall. Well, if if I recall, Greg gave you something far more impressive than that well, poster. Yes, I, I wanted to call out Griffin Mountain because it was my favorite campaign, and also my wife gifted me that. Uh, as uh, as a birthday present a number of years ago, but based on you know acquiring the rights to Glorantha and RuneQuest and the related things to that, uh, and then Greg being very happy with what we were doing with the line, he gifted me the painting from the RuneQuest Two cover. You know the uh, as Sandy Peterson calls it the uh, the woman the uh, iguana eating the burrito <laughs> cover of RuneQuest Two. Uh, the other yes. one with the shield and all that, and so I have the the cover painting of that as well. And who was and the uh, who was the artist for that? That was Louise Perrin, or Perrin, or she she changed the spelling and pronunciation of her name a few times over the years, but that was by Louise Perrin. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the kind of iconic picture that most people who played RQ back in the day will remember, won't they? Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. But, but uh, Rick, yeah. don't don't you also have the original um, print production uh, plate of the the William Church map for what became Dragon Pass? I have the William Church map uh, for King of Dragon Pass. I'm sorry, not Dra- King of Dragon Pass. That's that's a wonderful game by Dunham and Company. But no, yes, the William Church color map with hexes. Uh, I have that as well from White Bear and Red Moon. As in. So we're, we're we're talking the originals here, folks. Mm-hmm. This is this is pretty exciting. The 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 Louise Perrin painting. How big is that in, in it's, its original? It's, it's not particularly big. It's about eighteen inches by twenty four inches or so. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just made for camera ready art. I mean, in terms of actual gaming product, though. I mean, being a bit of a completist, or Mr. Suitcase, as they call me, <laughs> more, more on Mr. Suitcase in a minute, uh, I'm, I'm very much into collecting every printing and every edition of things, and so, you know, like, especially with White Bear and Red Moon, not that I, I played it in the day, I, I didn't get around to playing that until it became Dragon Pass, but I have one of the first of the 200 
uh, copies printed of White Bear and Red Moon still in the mailing envelope, Do Not Bend, and uh, Unpunched as well. Wow. And all all the other editions up through, you know, when it became Dragon Pass, including the French editions. And so got about nine different versions of that game kicking around on the shelves. Including the the nicely laid out Avalon Hill version with the inexplicably awful cover art. Well, there is that. But yes, I have the Avalon Hill version with the was it the, the with the troll ogre whatever with the big club and all that with the purplish kind of background, purple pink kind of Pepto Bismol background. Yeah, I got that one as well. I mean, the only the only thing I, I really like about that edition is they have the really nice thick Avalon Hill map boards. Oh, the map board is awesome. It's the best. Yeah, it's although, the, it, it's the best I, I printing of it. Yes, although I'm kicking myself over that one because I, I, I've, I've had a, the very, very good fortune over the years to have kind of been in the right place at the right time, which is, of course, what a lot of collectors, that's where their stories come from. And so there's definitely a bit of luck in collecting things because you can't buy all this stuff in the store. You know, I, I'll be the first to admit that it's not like I bought all this as it came out. I bought it on eBay. I bought it at convention auctions from large auctions like Gen Con. Mm-hmm. All the way down through, you know, smaller ones at conventions like uh, Convulsion and Tentacles, Eternal Con, uh, those type of gaming auctions, like the one at RQCon Down Under Mob. A lot of really, especially some local product was in that one. Sure. And so, as I've been collecting those things, the, you know, one of the opportunities when you speak of Dragon Pass that I missed is Avalon Hill used to have a wonderful spare parts section in their catalogs toward the back where you could always order anything that was missing or if you wanted an extra set of whatever. And they did uncut poster maps of all the boards. You think of any Avalon Hill game out there, you know, Civilization. Oh, you're kidding me. uh, Civilization, you know, Third Reich, any of those. Now, I don't know why at the time I didn't do it. I can't remember exactly. I think it was probably just because I was a college student and I didn't have a ton of money. But I bought the uncut poster maps for Civilization, Diplomacy, Third Reich, and a couple others. Wonderful full-color poster maps. Think of all the boards all together, one nice big poster. I saw the one for Dragon Pass, and I didn't buy it. Oh. So that's one of my... Sheer foolishness. Is that, is that, Rick, one of the ones that got away? Definitely. That's definitely one of the fish that got away. Oh, Rick, I think that, I think that explains your hidden... I think that explains your hidden map problem. <laughs> yes, hidden map problem. Uh, that's, the, that's the one thing about any large collection is that if you're not super organized and stay on top of it, it's easy just to have stuff tucked away on a shelf or you get something and just put it here, put it there. Hidden and, maps! Uh, hidden maps, you know, stuff tucked away. And then you kind of forget about it because it's not like you can pull this stuff out and look at it every week and use it all the time when you've got you know, several thousand items like I do. Rob? Uh, can, can I just say, I think that map, um, I don't think that was a fish that got away. I think um, with, with a nod to our other post, uh, uh, podcast, Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, I think that was a whale that got away. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you, Rob. I think it I was definitely it. a whale. It was definitely a whale that got away. But on the other hand, uh, I used to buy a lot of stuff mail order from Avalon Hill, and I completely spaced out that they even did that at all. So, at, at least you got something out of that. I I I noticed it and never got any of it, and I loved that map. Yeah, man, so, me too. 
So I'm just I I if you're kicking yourself, I'm kicking myself with both feet. <laughs> so uh, misery loves company. So Rick, that was that was one of the ones that got away. What uh, what's some of the uh, the the rarest or most unusual pieces that you have on your your bookcase? Well, I there are a few of them that I I, I know in uh, Worms Footnotes 15. You know when we brought back Worms Footnotes and decided to have a new issue come out after a a mere 30 year gap. <laughs> uh, one of the things I did in there is I started talking about some of the miniatures that came out through the RuneQuest and Glaranthan licenses, starting with archive miniatures. And then as a, a supplemental article that I hope to put into one of the next issues of Worms Footnotes when we get around to doing Worms Footnotes 16, is that I have what I believe is the only existing copy of Trollball miniatures produced by Martian Metals. Oh, wow! Uh, Martian Metals was gearing up in 1978 to take the Chaosium Trollball rules, you know, in the back of Worms footnotes, they had the hex map, they had the rules for moving the people around, and it was supposed to be with miniatures. And Martian Metals had the RuneQuest minis license, they weren't doing a whole lot with it back then. You know, they had the, the, the set of ducks come out, the, the brew with clubs, you know, and just mm-hmm. a few other ones, including the Walktopus, because you can't have a minis line without a Walktopus, right? Oh, but, no, not at all. At, you know, for Gen Con and Origins in 1978, if you, I, I found some old program books from those conventions. Martian Metals was there. They had their booth, and they were running various demo events. And one of the demo events they were running was for the upcoming Troll Balls miniatures game. They were going to do license from Chaosium as part of their miniatures license. And so they ran some demos. And they even advertised it in Dragon Magazine, of which I've got the issue of that Dragon Magazine. It's around issue 44 or something like that. And they even posted photos of these minis, but they never sold them. And somebody somehow managed to go to the Martian Metals booth at Origins in 78. or No, I'm sorry, it was Gen Con East. Sorry, Gen Con East. And they talked Martian Metals into selling them a set of those Trollball minis from the demo that they played. That guy put him on eBay, and guess who got him? <laughs> wow, Mister Suitcase. That's right. I, I and I managed, and that's the only set in existence. When I brought it up with uh, Paul Jakeways, uh, he had never heard of it, and he said, "Why?" Well, remember, they were working on the sculpts, and Steve Lortz did the sculpts, so maybe we could try to get hold of Steve. You know, Steve talked about how, yeah, sculpts were done, and they were in pre-production, and then he wasn't sure what happened with it. And I talked with Greg Stafford, and Greg was like, I know they were talking about doing that. And I, I asked Greg if he had a set, and he didn't have a set, even though he thought he might have. And we, you know, Jeff and Neil and I, we went through his garage one time of his archives, and I couldn't find those Trollball minis after two hours of looking. So as far as I know, it's the only Martian metal set of Trollball minis left in existence. Wow. That is pretty awesome. So, so Rick... Where did this phrase, Mr. Suitcase, come from? Well, the old Glorenthan Digest, which I always loved participating in. I I didn't have a lot of commentary when it came to some of the more esoteric 
glaranthan subjects, you know, mythology and things like that, because I, I'm not a huge glaranthan scholar. I, I enjoy glarantha and all the things that it's in it. I know all the basics, but when it comes to the fine esoteric details, I leave that to the real pros that have the time to get into that. But on the Glorantham Digest, people would ask about various old publications and, hey, anybody got a spare copy of Worms Footnotes 2? Or, hey, was this article ever published in different worlds? Or things like that. And if it had any collector, archival type of uh, information, that's where I would usually chime in. Mm-hmm. And I would talk about things in my collection. I would talk about, oh, well, if you're talking Worms Footnotes 2, you got to make sure that it's got the little counters and the white little paper envelope or it's not complete, those type of things. And one time I was talking with a collector, and he got just, or a person who wanted to get a hold of all this old stuff, and, you know, we had started just doing the Glaranthan Classics as reprints. And I just said that some of this you know, really rare esoteric stuff is probably never going to see print again. And that's when this guy got mad at me. It was somebody from France. I don't remember his name, but it doesn't matter. But he was like just saying, well, for somebody who has everything, it's easy for you to say you're not going to put something back in print. You're just one of those Mr. Suitcase guys that, you know, doesn't share. Oh, and, you know, the, the, the term itself comes from Magic the Gathering collectors who have one of every super rare card, you know, the, the ones that, you know, were very limited release, ultra rares that, you know, totally unbalance the game, but they haven't totally outlawed those Magic the Gathering cards. And, you know, they can pull those out and play and be anybody with them. And they have a whole suitcase full of everything. And so he just dubbed me Mr. Suitcase, but I, I just, you know, when, when somebody comes up with something like that, I usually just embrace the term, and, and I just, every SIG line for the next, I don't know, six months, I would always say, you know, Mr. Suitcase in my SIG line. <laughs> so, you actually have done a great service for these old rare materials in the fact that there was that product line, Gloranthan Classics. Um, what things did you actually bring out under that line? Well, it was a four-volume set, and the first volume, uh, near and dear to my heart, was the box set Pavis and the box set Big Rubble, with a little bit of extra material thrown in. And so, you know, it's it was the all the original material cleaned up, less typos in the originals, that's for sure. Uh, oh yeah, and you know, just went through magazines and fanzines and other places that Greg Stafford or Steve Perrin or any of the other original authors, you know, because a lot of times bits and pieces got cut from those, you know, final box supplements that Chaosium put out and, but they got published elsewhere or Mm -hmm. some of the original authors still had this stuff in a file cabinet or, you know, typed up somewhere. And I just contacted as many of the original authors as I could and said, hey, if anything got cut, anything cool extra, I heard about this, or there was this magazine article there, I included it in the books. And so volume volume one was centered around Pappas and Big Rubble, those two box sets. Next up came Griffin Mountain, which especially uh, Jay Quays and Kraft, the two main authors, they were very forthcoming with writing an extra introduction, putting together you know th- several pages of designer's notes. They sent me some art that never got included in there, and some really great background and history on what went into that product. So the second one was just Griffin Mountain. And, and that's actually quite a chunky volume, isn't it? 
Well, we also tried to add a lot of extra art, just because the originals, unfortunately, didn't have nearly as much art as people probably like to think they did. Mm -hmm. They didn't have much art at all. Yeah. And so we, I w- we were happy to commission artists to, you know, draw additional art just to round it out and bring it, I guess, what you could call up to a little bit more modern expectation of what people expect. You know, one piece of art every four pages instead of one piece of art every 12 or 16 pages. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those, those products, uh, you also had another hand in, in those, and in fact, well, going all the way forward to stuff that Moon Designers recently bought out, and that is... You're not just Mr. Suitcase, you're also Mr. Layout, aren't you? Well, yes, that's, that's you know, my number one capacity in terms of, you know, division of labor in Moon Design, not that it's a huge team of people, but one of my chief responsibilities is layout and design of all the printed publications. And so, you know, I, I started in 1999 uh, with Moon Design's first book, Pavis and Big Rubble, and done the layout of everything since. So if it's got uh, Moon Design on the title, I did the layout for it. So if you guys, if, if you're listening to this and you take a look at the Guide to Glorantha or HeroQuest Glorantha, I think those are the two very best examples of Rick's layout. Uh, both were very complicated books layout-wise, weren't they, Rick? Oh, definitely. Particularly the Guide. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, just the quality and the readability of of those books are are just remarkable. And people often, I think the the, the shame about layout is it's one of these things that if it's beautifully done, you don't notice it. You notice the lay. Most people know, notice the layout when it's poorly done. It's certainly more likely to. Uh, and the the guide to Glorantha it was just so, I mean it, there is so much material in there so many maps and so many little box set the text that you managed to get into that that uh, uh, I think that's 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 the uh, the uh, Heracles labor of of layout projects. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, that's been uh, recognized in uh, this year's Eddie Awards. Exactly. You got nominated for Best Production Value for Guide to Glorantha, among other and, things. Yeah, and it's an honor to be nominated for that and uh, looking forward to seeing how that turns out when we go to Gen Con later this month. Yeah, yeah. in fact, uh, also Best Cartography because uh, the Guide to Glorantha has some amazing maps in it that were uh, done by... Uh, Colin Driver, Colin Driver, who did an absolutely amazing job on the maps, uh, and those maps were, in most cases, uh, based heavily on Greg's original hand-drawn maps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then let's see, it also got nominated for best setting because Glorantha is the best setting in, in fantasy role-playing. And you're not the least and, bit biased in saying that. <laughs> no, not in the not in the slightest. And then uh, uh, book of the year. That's pretty four pretty good uh, nominations, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, but of absolutely. All, of course, we're also super stoked that the uh, Guide to Glorantha got nominated for the Diana Jones Award as well. Oh, can, yeah, that, we can just, you just tell us a bit what 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 is the Diana Jones Award? Well, I, it's it's kind of like the uh, product of the year uh, for the role playing industry. It's mm-hmm. kind of like the uh, best picture. 
or you know best uh, yeah it's it's like the you know the top name the top Oscar at the Oscars that's kind of what the Diana Jones Award is. Um, sorry, is, so, is, is that Diana Jones, Diana Wynne Jones, who wrote Howl's Moving Castle, or is there another Diana Jones? Oh no, there's there is another Diana Jones. Okay, I'm glad I got that sorted out. Who, who yes. wants to share that one? <laughs> I'm I'm happy to take a stab at it. Okay, I mean, uh, you do it, Rick. Well, you know, I, as I understand the story, TSR had the Indiana Jones role-playing game. Mm-hmm. And obviously they couldn't call it the Indiana Jones Award, and so when they, I, I believe they they have the ashes. Which, which, by the way, it's worth it's worth remembering that uh, the Indiana Jones role playing game was astonishingly bad, astonishingly <laughs> bad. Think of as good as the movies were, and then go the opposite way. <laughs> is this is this also the famous uh, TSR were famous for trademarking everything? Yes, and, and they, what did they trademark in this one? I believe or try they, to? They, they, tr- they tried to trademark, not just like Indiana Jones as a trademark, but they also trademarked the word Nazi. <laughs> yes. Yep. But in, in the end, they ended up uh, burning one of the copies or getting hold of a burned-up copy, the ashes of that copy, and in the trophy itself is embedded those ashes. And then they called it the Diana Jones Award. Uh, you know, just as a bit of irony for the best product made from the remnants of one of the, shall we say, not best products. And, and I believe that um, with the charring and the ashes, the first two letters of the words Indiana were burned off. So it now says the Diana Jones Award, not the Indiana Correct. Jones Award. Correct. Yes. Correct. So there you mm-hmm. go. You ask a question, Rob, you get the answer. Oh, that's it. And it probably won't just... stop me because I because I never learn. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, and that award I understand, uh, unlike the other any awards which is done by uh, voting from the public, that is actually done by a jury of uh, peers from the from the gaming industry. Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. So that is a big deal thing to be shortlisted there. I think there's about yeah. five products in the running. Yeah, and good uh, fingers crossed for the for the guide to Glorantha. It certainly deserves it, because Rick um, Moon Design, I don't think, is not just responsible for some of the, uh, the the most lovely looking gaming products in recent years, but definitely also the heaviest as well. Uh, yeah, pound for pound, there's a lot in the guide Glorantha, and there's a lot of pounds when you pick it all up. So we certainly uh, have the shipping bills to prove it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And that, that is, uh, that's always going to be a challenge, isn't it? Now, I, I understand that in mailing things in the United States, um, you need them to be a particular size and dimension, and if you, you, you don't want to go over that. Is that right? It helps. We have a wonderful service through the United States Postal Service called Flat Rate uh, Packages, mm-hmm. and we designed the Guide to Glorantha to fit in that flat rate box because we knew we'd be able to ship up to 20 pounds uh, for a, a, a very reasonable fee. Wow. Um, Rick, mm-hmm. if we go back, um, there is a product that uh, you're responsible for, which I think collectors would uh, be very thankful for, and that is the Mainz Index to Glorantha. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, sure. I mean, after posting various snippets about things in my collection, you know, people would ask, I can't find a copy of Trolls and Trollkin, you know, by Chaosium, what's in it? 
I would, you know, grab that book, you know, make sure I understood what was in it, and then I'd just post what was in it. And as I did that for more and more products over time, I, I, I managed to keep all those digest posts. And then somebody just said, well, why don't you just put them all into a book? And, you know, shortly before I started that, the uh, Stafford Companion, uh, the a little uh, booklet that came out at Convulsion, just listing all the things Greg had been involved in, uh, you know, uh, publishing and uh, being an author for, that kind of made me say, well, I could take something like that and not just have it be a bibliography, but actually just have all these descriptions of every product. And so uh, through the Reaching Moon Megacorp, you know, the most famous thing they published, of course, being the Tales of the Reaching Moon, 20 mm -hmm. issues of that magazine, uh, you know, working with David Hall, we published the Mind's Index to Glorantha through there. You know, and it's, it's not a slim volume. It's, you know, about 128 pages, and it just lists from the beginning of Glorantha all the way through the late 90s, everything ever published that had RuneQuest or Glorantha in it, with a lot of detailed descriptions of every single product. Mm. And that was, uh, there were two editions of that too, wasn't there? Well, you know, I, it, you know, bless the fans, anything I missed for whatever reason, because it was largely based on what was in my collection, uh, when people bought MIG-1, as it, it was just the Mines Index of Glorantha, but now I call it MIG-1, first edition, uh, a lot of other people, other collectors, would email me and just say, "Well, you forgot about you know this magazine, you know, uh, from Ireland or from France or you name it." That's how I found out about uh, you know the Australian fanzines and things like that. And so I had to go back and basically start adding all these things. A, a lot of people would point me toward an issue, and I was able to buy that particular magazine on eBay. Some collectors just said, oh, I've got one. I've never looked at it. I'll, I'll sell it to you for 5 bucks." And so a lot of extra things got added based on just feedback uh, for things I missed. And so otherwise I would have never had, you know, breakout issue number 34 or, you know, uh, you know, fantasy chronicles or things like that, especially a lot of European and overseas material get added in. And that, that probably mm -hmm. added another 40 pages at least of just magazine articles and things like that. And then, of course, other people said, well, you know, you, you didn't include miniatures as much as I thought, as you should have. And, and so I added more on miniatures and just all other Glaranthan or RuneQuest-related things. Um, so so can, can I just make this plain? In order to be a completist collector of Glorantha, you have to be a completist index collector. Yes. I, that would help. <laughs> that would help. I mean, yeah, so, so did, did, um, does the MIG have the most important of the early, middle, late uh, fanzine uh, products, uh, the notorious GURP. GORP. GORP. Well, it does Garp. have GORP magazine in there, but, <laughs> you know, the, you know in, in the end, of course, you know, GORP is a fictional magazine. And not the, no, no, early. say it ain't so! Say <laughs> no, it ain't so! But, Next thing you're going to no. say is that the tooth fairy isn't real. <laughs> That's, well, I'm not going that far. I'm, I'm not, I, I got young children at home that may be listening to this sooner or later. The tooth fairy is real. We have her, we have her on speed dial if uh, she ever forgets to show up one night, and then usually within an hour, they, they do express delivery of that you know, quarter or a dollar. <laughs> okay, so so, no, so, so mean, tell me this nonsense that GORP isn't real. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the, the, the uh, first sighting of David Hall? Supposedly, but, you know, but the, the MIG actually 
was the part of the whole, you know, the beauty of any con is in the details. And so in, in, uh, in the Index of Glorantha, one of the things I had that I certainly loved writing up was the what never was section for things that oh, I either couldn't yes. find, you know, because in Worms Footnotes magazine and early Chaosium catalogs, they would always say, coming soon, <laughs> like Hero Quest. How about and, like the Sarter, the Sarter book with Road Encounters? Uh, you know, the X-rated supplement for Request. <laughs> There's all kinds of things in there that they talked about for issue after issue of, you know, Greg is working on this or so-and-so is working on that. And then there was a whole range of these products that they talked about, sometimes for years, but never saw print. And so sprinkled throughout the MIG, I would have these little side boxes of what never was. And in one of those what never was boxes, after chatting with Mob and a few other of the friends, you know, probably met up in London at the pub or something like that, and we're talking through it, one of the things I threw in the what never was, or maybe never was, is this magazine that I had been dying to find a copy of known as Gorp Magazine. <laughs> well, we, 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 can, we can make you up a copy because, um, because it's a forgery to begin with. We can do any amount of additional forgeries that are just as authentic as the original. Yeah, and so we, we, we just started that as a joke at the pub. And then, of course, Mob and colleagues turned that into not only one issue, but two issues. Actually, two and a half issues of Gorb. Oh, now that's going to set the cat among the pigeons with the collectors listening to this, Rick. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, but, you know, it, it was a lot of fun at the time. And uh... so, so, Rick, um, just tell us, what what's out there that you'd love to get your hands on that you, you don't actually have? but you know is out there somewhere. Oh, my. There are, I mean, some of it's kind of boring. I, you know, there are things like, there are a couple of archive miniatures that I, I have some of the recasts that were mm -hmm. done um, in the 90s. No, it was done in 2000. Um, but anyway, there are a few of the original ones that I don't have. I've never seen them. I, I, I've never, never seen them for sale, and I, and I look quite a bit. There, you know, in terms of early publications, I, I've been working really hard, and I've had a lot of good friends who were happy when they didn't want various things from their collections anymore, or unfortunately gave up on role playing, or the, knowing that I'm a completist in Mr. Suitcase. They've been all very generous in helping me fill up my suitcase. Uh, mm -hmm. So, it, without trying to be too blase, there's a few little bits and pieces. But you know, if I had to name like the Holy Grail collectible, I've always wanted to find. I'm not. I, unfortunately, one doesn't leap to mind. If, if one leaps to mind before the end of our chat, I'll throw it in as a "Wait a minute, I thought of something." <laughs> okay, you know, well, I'm, I'm I'm actually thinking that 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 Rick is a lot like the uh, the Corzo character from the um, uh, the the book. It was turned into the movie, the the Ninth Gate, but um, the the actual book, the the name is escaping me of it. Um, oh, the Club Dumas. The book collector from the yes. Club ah, du Mas, yes. except except um, Rick, he got to be played by Johnny Depp. So maybe <laughs> you get to cool. be played by yeah, exactly, exactly. Maybe he'll be played by you get to be played by Johnny Depp in his pirate face. So Rick, we're gonna we're gonna move on to uh, the questions at the the end sure. of the interview. But before I do that, Rob usually jumps in with a final question. Well, um, I am. Um... 
Um, one of the things that you said that you had white, bare, red moon in the original mailing envelope, please tell me that at least the, the envelope has been opened. Or, or have you got that much self-control? Well, who says I only have one copy of that, Rob? <laughs> oh. Oh, God. I have one that's opened and one that's not opened. Oh, that, wow. that is amazing. Uh, uh, because there's actually two different colors of mailing envelope for all you collector's fans out there. There's the brown-colored mailing envelope, which I have open, and then there's the white mailing envelope, which I still have sealed. Now, now surely that means that you, you now need to get a copy of the brown unsealed. And you need to get a copy of the white open. My wife does place a little bit of limits on this. <laughs> you know, there's the we're going to sell your collection to send the kids to college kind of thing. <laughs> so, no, I, I, I don't worry about things like that. But, no, I, uh, I, I, I do have multiple copies of that. I don't tend to have multiple copies of everything, but I, I do happen to have multiple copies of that because I, I really wanted to know what it looked like. Now, now that's just another observation I'd like to make is that when we were talking to uh, David Dunham and uh, he was talking about doing um, King of Dragon Pass as an iOS game, he said that, in fact, a lot of... While people remember that as a classic game from last century, they actually did a lot of new art for the iOS version. And you were saying that you've been doing that for the, for the classic editions that you've been printing. So it, it's really almost like you're trying to make a product that's the way people remember the product, not, not the way it actually was. In, in many respects, yes. <laughs> and uh, another, I just want to, uh, again, referring to another previous uh, interview we did with Sandy Peterson, where he um, was very proud that he'd done a lot of the original typesetting for all of those uh, those Chaosium products. So, so they're, they're all the typos that you had to clean up, because he said that he used to write as he typeset. So maybe while he was doing that, his attention wasn't um, all, that, uh, all that focused on the actual spelling. Yeah, well, that, that, that's, that's probably very true. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time having to scan all those in. I mean, one of, the, one of the brief digressions here, you know, when I had to do Griffin Mountain, I had to, you know, get it all scanned in, but it's a perfect bound book. Oh. And that means I had to take an X-Acto knife and cut the spine mm. off of the book to get them all with separate sheets of paper. And that was not an easy thing for a collector who no. prides himself on the condition <laughs> and you know of things. Cutting, I, I had to find a, a one that was beaten up on eBay. I couldn't take one from my collection and do it. I, I bought an extra one on eBay that was already in fairly beaten up shape, and the cover was loose and everything. And that's the one I took the exacto knife to the spine to take it and make it all individual sheets of paper. Uh, and you were probably crying as you were doing it too. <laughs> well, I could hear soft violin music in the background. I managed to, you know. Uh, brush away a bitter tear when I die. so we're going to move on to our, our questions at the, the end of the interview we've asked everybody so far that's uh, come on so we're going to move on to you Rick, so Rick can you tell us something that everybody knows about you as a gamer that I'm a power gamer more than any other style mm-hmm. so if you, if you played a RuneQuest character by choice what would you be well, I, funnily enough, I was more into the money is power thing, and so I always played Anissaries Merchant. Uh -huh. <laughs> and then I had people that were specialist fighters, because, you know, I, I, I got hired by Joe Myth's Caravan mm -hmm. in the Griffin Mountain campaign. 
and that's how I kind of got my start. We went on Joe Myth and his adventures, and not only did I want to move around a lot and get different things, but you know it was very easy to trade for things, get extra powerful things, and so to me, in some ways, and this is probably controversial, and I'm sure there'll be some debate over it for anybody who uh, you know picks up on it. But to me, I think Isseri's Merchants can be one of the ultimate ways to being a power gamer in Glorantha. Uh huh. So what about uh, what? What what do you um, what do people uh, not know about you as a gamer? Not know as a gamer. That's a toughie. Or um, you can throw it open to just just something people don't know about you. Um, you know, at all. At all. <laughs> but but be careful before you put something on the record. Uh, well. Hmm, that's a toughie. Um, I think I think you know the other answer I could give for what everybody knows about you, Rick. While you're thinking, is mm-hmm. if they've gone to a convention with you, what what's what's the item that is always going to come out at some point in a in a free form? Well, oh, the well, poncho. <laughs> yes, the, the magic poncho. Yes, my wonderful magic poncho bought in Tijuana, Mexico. Uh, many, many days. This is even before I was into, you know, uh, LARPs and all that before or anything else. I just happened to be in Tijuana, and for 10 bucks on one of those tacky trade stands, they happened to have a multicolored poncho that I, I just brought it to the very first uh, free form I ever played in and wore it as the costume because it kind of sort of fit, and I'm not very good at costuming. And so I've basically tried to wear that at every free form I've played in ever since all the way up to the last free form I played in you know white baron red moon at uh, gen con and I can tell you that that blue poncho just seems to fit just about any genre doesn't it <laughs> well whether or not it fits it, it gets pulled out at some point in pretty well, much every I, genre I, I I will digress a little and say that when I was playing Herrick the berserk very famous for wearing his you know big white bear skin, you know, you know, the actual, you know, skin from a god that he defeated in battle with bear claws and everything else. And here I am wearing my multicolored rainbow blue poncho. And somebody comes up to me and says, Herrick wouldn't wear a poncho. And I'm like, you're telling me I can't wear a poncho. (laughs) So, so, so Rick, tell us, uh, something you do worse than the average gamer. Worse than the average gamer. Yeah. Um, and then I'm, sp- spoilers I'm going to ask you something you do better after this something I do worse than the average gamer I- I'm very bad at keeping my character sheet up to date oh okay and that must be tough if you're playing the Isseries Merchant with. Uh, well that was always one of, of my downfalls I would always forget where I put stuff I'd always say well I'll write that down later <laughs> um, but better at than the average gamer is that the question? That's, that's yes. We got better and worse. Uh, I like to think that I'm I'm really good in a game at just being off the cuff and going with the story. Mm-hmm. I, I believe in the power of yes. I don't know. Many years ago, I read this thing about improv theater. Yes. Where if you if, if improv is going to work at all, whatever anybody throws out there, 
you just have to go with it and build on it and just try to make it fun. You can't if you just say no or that won't work or whatever else, then it just it just kills all the forward energy and all the positive things going on. And so, any anytime I'm playing a game, especially a one-off role-playing session, I just go with whatever's going on and just try to make it all the funnier, all the more interesting, and include other people along with it. And so, I really believe in the power of yes. And just going with whatever gets thrown. Oh, that, that's that's very much the maximum game fun philosophy, I think. I, I definitely yeah, picked up so. a lot of cues uh, from uh, playing in some of yours, including the embarrassment of riches game that uh, you GM'd down at RQCon down under. Oh yes, now this is this is going back to a convention that was held in 1996 in Melbourne, Australia. And it was actually um, probably one of the few uh, Glorantha conventions that has been held in a primary school with very small chairs. Yep. That that's going back a long time, Michael. Um, Michael, I think first time flipping bottle caps. Yes. Oh dear, Michael. I think you actually invited me to uh, to that convention, and you said, "Oh, it's at a primary school." And I think I said, "Oh, I have other plans." <laughs> you missed a good one. I, I, you I certainly I, did. Right? I, I regret that now. <laughs> that was a definitely had to be there type of event. Absolutely. So, um, Rick, we really appreciate you uh, coming on today and uh, sharing how you learned, how you became Mister Suitcase, and and uh, the interesting things that you have in your collection. We'd love to have you back on Tales of Mythic Adventure again at some point. Oh, I'd love to come back. Um, and we will definitely be bringing you back on this show. So thanks thanks for being with us today. And uh, we'll also try and improve uh, the beverages in the green room in our Please do. North American studios. Please do. Uh, yeah. and Staff will I, when, be flogged. Staff you know, will be flogged. You know, there was an empty drinks fridge when I got in here. And, oh, uh, no. I don't know whoever your last guest was, but they're, they're pretty greedy. <laughs> and I, you should have restocked. That's all I can say. Okay. But thanks again for having me on here. I've really enjoyed it. I uh, always uh, love talking about collecting and gaming, especially with good friends like you guys. Oh, thanks, Rick. Well, thank you, Rick. Well, I think that's it for another episode of Tales of Mythic Adventure. Join us hold next on, week. Hold on, hold on, hold on. No, no, no. Come what? on, guys. <laughs> and this concludes another tale of... Anyway, I... <laughs> Why, why, why settle for the recording when you can do it live, right? Oh, yes, you know... Okay, let's have you sign us off, Rick. And this concludes another tale of Mythic Adventure, a Rabbit Hat Farm production. And I'm Jeff. And I'm Mob. And I'm Robert. And we'll see you next week. Tally-ho.